Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg. This is Rock and Rolls, and this is the return of Bobby Miller to this podcast. And, you know, one of the reasons I I wanted to do this with Bobby is I found the last few podcasts and the last few months of my life, it's hard to get through an hour or two of the day without talking or thinking about Donald Trump. And I I don't want to betray any of the political or moral beliefs I have and my criticisms of the president or my support of a lot of the resistance, but I'm sick of thinking about him. And I feel that there's some um, challenge for those of us that are that are spiritual people uh, to, to be responsible citizens and not become kind of uh, addicted to that conversation. Uh, I'm also happy to have Bobby on because he recently published a book that I got called The Downtown State of Mind, and it's his photographs in New York City, uh, the uh, artistic underground from 1973 to 1983. And uh, Bobby is one of the people that really inspires me because of his ability to have multiple citizenship in different worlds and stay stay centered. So. Let me just start. Have you been struggling with this Trump thing too? Does it get into your head as much as it gets into mine? You know, I um, I think for me, because of our great uh, teacher, Hilda Charlton, who instilled in me uh, the ability for non-reaction and quick adjustment. Mm. You know? Now, uh, non-reaction and quick adjustment are great tools to use through your everyday life, whether you're dealing with a disgruntled boss or an employee or a friend or a neighbor or a stranger, you know, and you get good at that. After a while, you, it's like a muscle, you know, it's that spiritual muscle where you practice non-reaction. And so you find yourself just simply observing and watching it all go by you as though it's on a, Hilda used to call it a, a divine, uh, um, conveyor belt, you know, you mm. just watch it go by without getting involved. And and I'm I'm able to do that in 85 to 90 percent of the time. Mm. But, you know, that other 10 to 15 percent of the time, I'm just like anybody else. You know, you react, you can't believe you're dealing with this idiot, you know, whoever the idiot is. In this case, the idiot is Donald Trump, you know. And I mean, we're old enough to have lived through, you know, five, six presidents. And, you know, to watch this unfold and happen, it's just like it boggles the mind. You know, I think any intelligent, conscious person who is paying attention is just it's like I'm in awe that this person is president of the United States and that they're so blatantly stupid and you know, their way of looking at things. I mean, it's not just because he's a Republican. I have plenty of friends who are Republicans. It's not just that he, you know, may be considered him, he might consider himself a conservative, 
But I have friends who are conservative. But this is a different animal. This is a person who is lacking common sense and lacking a kind of integrity that we seem to, if you come from a, a family where your parents taught you right from wrong or how to be kind or how to be considerate of other people, he seems to lack all of that, you know? he. Well, and, but it's not possible that, it seems unlikely to me that God would create a, a population where, you know, almost half the people lacked all of those things. So so there 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 is some... Um, there is there is some um, I, I search for a place to find a way of honoring the divinity like Hilda would say if you're on the subway and it's very crowded instead of feeling sort of claustrophobic and and depressed that you're in this crowded situations she would say oh there's a lot of God around me today you know and to just look <laughs> at the people and on the subway which I do take I live in Manhattan you you know, you're lucky enough at the moment not to, but I know you remember it. And uh, I can actually do that on the subway. Um, I, I, The minute I'm feeling uncomfortable on the subway, I think of her saying that. And even if I'm not totally radiating light or anything like that, I can, I can, re I can remember that that's a higher self. And I can remember that that's, that's really the way to be. And out of that remembering, then the sort of higher energy just sort of takes over. Uh, most of the time, I would say like you, 80, 90%. I, I find with the, the drama, the operatic drama of what's going on politically now, it's, it, it, it just does feel, um, you know, like, like an addiction. Uh, it, it feels like, like a, the, the, the conversations are too predictable that, that I, and, and I'm trying to, again, honor my ethics and political views without dishonoring my belief that God is in everyone, including Donald Trump and including the people who disagree with us about, about, about what he's doing. And at the same time, I want to honor the sense of vulnerability that people have who feel particularly threatened during this period. Muslims uh, spring to mind, but there are many, many, many others. And I'm having a hard time making those connections inside myself on a minute-to-minute -minute basis sometimes. You know, I uh, for those of us who, you know, listen to Hill to talk about the world and how the world would change and what the future might hold and how to prepare ourselves for that, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, having come through, you know, the rough streets of San Francisco in the 60s and the wild disco nights of the 70s and, you know, and I thought, oh, well, I can, I can handle anything, you know. I can, mm -hmm. I can get through anything. If I got through all of that, I can get through this. And I, so I try, and I, I listen to how other people react. I read, I read a lot. I read three newspapers every day. I, I, I what, try. What newspapers are you reading? I read uh, the New York Times and the New York Daily News, and just for fun, because Hilda said you always can get 
a different perspective, I read the New York Post. Right. Good, good. And, you know, and sometimes if I'm in line at the grocery store, I'll read the National Enquirer. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hilda used to love stories that she would find in the National Enquirer. And we would just sort of smile innocently and laugh and think, oh, God bless her. You know, she she loves everyone, you know. But she did find great stories in the National Enquirer. And she <laughs> would use them in, in her lectures and we would get something out of it. But, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, I, I don't I think that I think we can do what we can do. We write letters, we make phone calls, we call our, our senators, we call our congressmen. We you do what you can do. Or as Hilda would say, you work like it depends on you and you pray like it depends on God. Nice now, one. Nice one. You know, so if God is is if there's as much God in Donald Trump as there was in my divine Hilda, then I have to give pause and I have to stop and I have to say, okay, is there a higher purpose here? Is Donald Trump being used even beyond his own understanding to drive us as human beings to this other place where we look at the negativity and we look at the darkness of the world and and we think okay what can i get out of this can i you know the second uh, my um my second book of poetry was called Benestrific Blonde, and it was a word that Hilda gave me. It's the opposite of catastrophic. You know, instead of it being a catastrophe, it's a benestrophe. Hilda translated <laughs> it as turning all bad to good or turning negative <laughs> to good. So the name of my book was Benestrific Blonde, and Hilda gave me that title. You know, and so I... I always think of that and I think, okay, whatever it is, whatever is happening, how can I turn this around so that I don't cart this away with me and have it eating inside of me and maybe leave something there that someone else can pick up or take up themselves? You know, it does no good to argue with somebody who disagrees with you. I, I want to slow down for a minute and I want you to re-explain that word. And I really want to take take it in, and other people take it in. Benestrific, yeah, is an explosion of goodness, right. as opposed to catastrophe, which right. is a an event of of, of negativity. Right. This is an event of positivity. Right. So you're taking the negative and you're turning it around. So instead of it being a catastrophe that we have Donald Trump as a president. This is a benestrific event. It's an opportunity for us to turn that around. Now, how can we turn that around? Well, we can certainly we can pray like God and ask God for help and to sort of oversee it. But then, you know, my my spiritual intellect intellect starts saying, well, then if like I said, if God is present in Donald Trump, then then maybe God is at work here. So is there something I can gain from this? Is there something I can learn from this? Not that not that God wants us to suffer or that he wants Muslims to suffer or that any of the things that Donald Trump's administration is doing that affects people in a in a negative way. Um, you know, that's there. That's what it is. Now, 
Am I going to get pulled into it and turn it into a catastrophe? No, I'm going to pull back, rise up into a higher place in my awareness and turn it into a benestrific event for me to turn the negative into positive. Mm. Now, that sounds easy. And we listened to Hilda talk about these things for 30 years. But it isn't until you use those tools, you know, I remember her saying to me once, you know, a fork on the table by itself is useless. But when you pick it up and you eat with it, then you can feed humanity. You know, it's not the fork. Mm. It's what you do with the fork. Mm. So what, am, what do we do? What do we do with Donald Trump? What do we do with the, the GOP and the Republican conservative party? You know, I find it, I mean, on a rational sense, I find it very hard to understand how human beings in 2017 can actually think the things they think and believe the things that they believe and think that that's okay. That, you know, I mean, I, I, I was saying to someone yesterday about, you know, they kept saying, well, when, when are the Republicans going to see what's going on here? And when are they gonna step in? Who's gonna come and save us from this madman. Well, well, the only, I mean, the only way that things change or if enough of the public opinion changes, I mean, I don't think you can expect politicians to get too disconnected from public sentiment. I mean, they are, their profession is to cater to it and to reflect it. And rarely are they going to differ, differ from it. You know, they have different constituencies. They have people who give them money also. But it's, the, the thing I keep thinking about is, I know I'm never going to figure all this out. I don't think it's my role to figure everything out. What is God doing all these things in the world? It's certainly not only Donald Trump. It's the tremendous suffering of other parts sure. of the world. And uh, there are people on the left. I wrote a piece recently where I talk about how Dr. King's um, belief in love, uh, he's, it's only, only light can, darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred can't drive out hatred only Love can do that. And, you know, you get these comments, you know, on the nation page and someone said, this is so naive. The left doesn't understand. You know, you you can net, the right understands that violence is necessary to accomplish things. And the, the writer of this is doesn't understand that. That's why the left always loses, you know. So uh, there are people on the left and there were in the 60s also who who uh, who believe in things that I don't believe in. But but what I try to think is how to stay in a place of love regardless of what's going to happen because it's unlikely to me that in our lifetime all of these issues that have been going on for thousands of years involving morality are going to be resolved right but but uh and and i don't feel like that that the my intellect is capable of figuring all of it out but but to stay in a place of love like ramdas said recently you know resistance is fine but resist with love and to stay in a place right. of love to me is the is is the challenge and that's about to me sometimes disconnecting from an addiction to the to the drama and and like i guess what you're saying is observe it instead of being you know kind of controlled controlled by it um but it ties into you know if i could just add another thread to the conversation because i really want to talk about the thing that we're both been doing which is documenting the past and things that inspired us you know i I go back to 1967 in my book, and in Downtown State of Mind, you documented a, 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 a very rich uh, uh, artistic and cultural scene that's continued to reverberate decades later, and there's a mythology about New York punk scene, and people still are curious about it, and it's almost larger than life 
it's it's it almost looms larger today, I think, than it did at the time in terms of its place in the in the culture writ large. But so much of it also was about tribalism, was about a group of people wanting to look a certain way and uh, and have certain values and uh, to, to to sort of separate themselves from the rest of the world. And um, you know, there's a lot to separate from, and there's a lot of beauty in 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 the creative spirit. But there's also the sort of how do you balance the, the Hilda part of you with the tribal uh, uh, kind of romance of that period? H how do these things connect? Well, you know, it's interesting. As always, it's interesting to hear someone else out having a different, looking at something from a different point of view. Because, um, you know, I when I did this book, I did this book because I had this enormous body of, of work and photo of photographs. And, um, and I thought they were artistically great images and strong mm -hmm. images and people liked them. People responded favorably to them. Talk a um, little about some of the images for people who haven't seen the book. Um, I don't even have a copy of it here. Oh. Well, well, I, yes, I, I do. I could, I could just read you the names. Oh no, I have one right here. Okay. I have one here. Uh, Let's see. Well, you know, there's a, there are people who are in the book who were kind of personalities of the time. There were people that I became aware of because of their look, because of their work, their songs, their poetry, their writings, the way they dress, their fashion sense. So, you know, what drives a photographer to take pictures and record uh, a time period, you know, it's because what's going on hasn't happened before. So you're seeing it for the first time and you're sort of pulled into it. And you're recording it. And you're, well, you're also making choices. You're saying this is worthy of documenting. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, what if I think about the that time period where there, uh, what other, what was going on outside of the 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 punk rock world? I mean, Certainly not everybody was into it. It was a very specific crowd of people that were into it. So what else was happening during those years? You know, um, it seemed that it was the thing that was happening that was different than everything else that was happening that caught my eye. But, you know, I, I think I may have said this uh, at my book party that you were at in New York at the at Al Gallery, which was that I, I sort of felt like I was there witnessing this and documenting it but i didn't like it i thought it was i thought it was uh dangerous and scary and uh, you know um offensive and and yet i couldn't tear myself away it's like you're watching a car accident you know mm. it's horrible to watch but you you just can't stand, stop yourself and so you get pulled in so i got pulled in and as a doc as a as a document as a photojournalist you know, it was what there was to photograph because a shoot, you know, a few short years after that, or even during the end of that time period, you know, disco came and right. it was Studio 54. And so then I went that way and I documented that. Right. And then when that was over, you know, it was another time period. And so I turned around and documented that. So I don't really hold any particular uh, affection for the mm. for for that period or the subject matter because I found it um, I found it kind of you know a little unnerving you know to be around these people with razor blades and and safety pins in their faces you know it was a little scary for me I mean I came from the romantic ideal of the hippies you know right and 
and to go from peace and love and flowers and all of that to this sort of other time period, it, I, I remember thinking to, to myself at the time, you know, all, all, none of these people are going to survive this. They're all going to be dead. They're all going to die of drug overdoses or they'll all be killed. I mean, I felt this dark, heavy negativity, and yet I couldn't tear myself away. And mm. I felt that it was important to record it, if not only to show to future generations to think this is not the way to go. It's a better way to go. Well, well, I, as 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 we were speaking before we started the podcast, you know, I was very much uh, deeply affected by the hippie period. I'm a couple of years older than you and and just felt uh, uh, felt very, um, you know, I certainly took acid a lot and 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 very much identified with the ideals of peace and love. And my theory about the rejection of the hippie period by the next generation was that they weren't rejecting the stuff I loved. They were sort of rejecting the cartoon version that the media gave, the distorted right. version of what I loved, that the real thing that I loved quickly disappeared once the media glare uh, required it to, 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 to disappear. But there's no question that, that the generation of younger people who were teenagers in the 70s compared to the 60s the, 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 a lot of the most creative people, a lot of the most sort of uh, um, culturally adventurous people, uh, you know, part of their identity was it was kind of an angry rejection of the of the of, of, of the 60s hippie hippie ethos. Um, why do you think that that happened? I mean, uh, you know, uh, why, why do you think people were so angry at it? Was it was it a sense of that it didn't deliver Nirvana overnight or? or that it seemed like to be uh, well, hypocritical I mean, I, or? I think that's a really, actually that particular statement, that question you just asked, I think is very telling. I mean, I think, yes, people thought, oh, it's, you know, I mean, there were those, you know, this is before I met Hilda. I mean, this is in the late sixties in the summer of love in San Francisco. And people would talk about the new age. And, you know, there were those people who were ahead of the game. They were already reading and studying. Ram Dass was already, had already written Be Here Now. You know, there was already an established uh, group of people uh, in America and in Europe and certainly Americans and Europeans who had traveled to India who had embraced this awareness that uh, we have to move away from, you know, we came out of the Second World War. We came out of all of that war. And then Suddenly, you know, we were right back into into Vietnam. And so the hippies, you know, we took up this call of peace and peace and love and trying to establish and, you know, the age of Aquarius, you know, we were all in and in on that in on that. And uh, and. There were people who were against that. They thought we were stupid. They thought we were dirty hippies. They, you know, look at those filthy hippies. I didn't know any dirty hippies. All the hippies I knew were wore panne velvet and, you know, and, <laughs> and gorgeous clothes. And they all had Afghan hounds and they all lived in Georgetown, you know. <laughs> so for me, I associated that with a certain accomplishment that if you lived your life that way, if you took up the call for peace and love, then that would bring you know the whole concept and understanding of karma i'd never heard the word until the late 60s mm. you know and and i'm sure certainly there were people before us and before that generation who had studied hinduism or buddhism and they were already on to it right but, but it was this small kind of academic group or religious groups it wasn't in the pop conversation right. 
And as we saw it explode after Woodstock, you know, and by Woodstock, it, it exploded. By Monterey Pop, it exploded. We were living in this new world, and we were determined that this was the age of Aquarius, that we were the generation that was going to bring about peace and love and acceptance of all people. And and we generally turned our most people who I knew who were who had undertaken that way of thinking and living their lives, they were settled into it. That was who they were. It was the way they saw things. And then to be confronted by the 70s with this generation of people who just said, oh, well, you know, we were taking acid in the 60s so that we could reach enlightenment. Well, now we're taking acid not to reach enlightenment, but just for the fun of it and just for the enjoyment of it, which led to drugs for drugs as a as a, a, a habit of, of, you know, fun and and a distraction from life, you know, which led to drug addiction and overdoses and death. You know, I mean, it was a moment of great awakening for me to see how this dream of love and peace and beauty had trans our culture didn't get it they 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 kind of took it on and then the next thing we knew it had been thrown to the wayside and we had this whole nother generation unfolding and i didn't quite know what to do with it but i i also wanted to be cool and i wanted to be hip you know, and I wanted to go with the flow and be like everybody else, you know. Yeah. Um, and really, it, Hilda was the awakening for me. I mean, I met Hilda in 1980. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I had, you know, came to her straight from Studio 54 and from that whole world. And so suddenly I was like, oh, my God, this is like this is like what it used to be. This is the way I used to think before I got suckered into all of the drugs and alcohol and, you know, and the wild sex of the 70s, you know. So by 80, I was kind of ready. I was excited and uh, and, and very welcoming to uh, Hilda and her perspectives. But, you know, I uh, I mean, I quit taking drugs and, al and drinking alcohol in 1980. So for me, that was kind of the, it was right on time for me, but all my friends weren't doing that. So all my friends kind of sort of moved me away and out of the way and didn't want anything to do with me. And I unfortunately, until I was with Hilda long enough to learn, I was one of those people that pointed my fingers at anybody. Oh, look at you. You're a drug addict. You're this. You're that. And it really wasn't until she said to me, when you point your finger at someone, you have three pointing back at yourself. So stop focusing on what's wrong with other people and start focusing on how you can become a better person, mm -hmm. you know, and and that I didn't get that in the 60s. I just thought, oh, this is fun. This is love and peace and, you know, great rock concerts. And, I, you know, luckily I saw everybody. You and I saw everybody. Yeah. There's no one I didn't see. You know, I saw everyone. And so, you know, that those years flew by. I mean, it's they really flew by much faster than the 70s flew by or much faster than the 80s flew by, you know. And um, I I sometimes, you know, I'll find a photograph or 
I'll find a, a you know, I'm a, I'm a terrible person that saves way too much stuff. So I have closets full of clothes from the 60s, you know. So I'll pull out some hippie shirt from the 60s and I'll think, oh, you know, and I'll smell it. Oh, and it kind of smells like patchouli, you know. Mm. <laughs> like, and so you, it's easy to long for those innocent, wonderful time with, that we lived in, you know, when we could we could block out the rest of the world and we could live in the world in our own little world. Well, we can't do that now because the world, the whole world, is right here in front of us on this computer. And if you don't take part in it, then then you can't then you miss out on a lot of other things. Did you see the Pope's uh, TED talk by any chance? I did. Yeah, I he talks about how we're interconnection, you know, and how we're all connected. I I found that uh really one of the most inspiring things that someone on the on the big public stage has come out with in in in, in recent times. But one difference to me, one thing about the 60s, there was you, you know, the, the, the being, you know, prior to the Summer of Love, they called it the gathering of the tribes. But it was really the gathering of only certain tribes. It wasn't the gathering of all of the tribes of humanity, obviously. And there was sort of a tribalism writ large to me of hippies, which is we were cool and other people were not cool. You know, we yes, were, we, yeah, we were yeah. heads, you know, it was like in those days, the word straight meant not taking drugs, you know, That's right, and yeah. You know, we were there were heads and there were straights, and I kind of looked down with a bit of sympathy and pity on straights, but it didn't really consider them kind of equally cosmic. And I don't think I think that that there was a big part of the country that felt that certain condescension, and they didn't like it. And you know, I think that's sort of part of what gave rise to some of the anger of the the, the Nixon so-called silent majority. And I asked Ramdas. You know, I, I did some email questions of him right after the election, and he said, and I didn't know exactly what he meant by it, and it wasn't an opportunity to have a conversation. Like, you know, that he felt that 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 the that, that the Trump election was not completely unrelated to the '60s; that there was some kind of polarization that was exacerbated by that. And on the other hand, the teachings of that Ramdas came out with and be here now, and that Hilda gave us, and that other people gave was not to uh, exclude people for not being cool enough or not being spiritual enough, but to draw the circle. What did she say? You know, I draw, somebody drew a circle that kept me out and I drew a circle that took them in or something like that. That's right. Well, you know, that I, I, when I first heard her say that, it thrilled me because that was always my perspective, even in the 60s, you know, because listen, we talk about love and peace and how conscious the hippies were. They weren't that conscious. Right. They, involved in their own little bubble of what they were interested in. They were not uh, supportive of gay people. They were not right. supportive of women. They were, you know, if you saw a black hippie, it was a rare thing. Right. And so, you know, all of those social issues, those things just sort of got kept being pushed under the rug. You know, I remember meeting Jack Davis, who was Rennie Davis's brother. And uh, Jack Davis was one of uh, the people who uh, was part of a group of people, and he invited me one night, Georgetown, to go to a meeting where they were talking about bl blowing up the Capitol building in Washington. And they did. They put a bomb in the bathroom, and they blew up a urinal, and that was it. That was their big thing, right? <laughs> but I, I remember going to this meeting with him, and Jack was gay, as far as I knew, I because I had had a relationship with him. But 
he was very closeted and he didn't want any of the other, you know, uh, hippie people and the guys from SDS and uh, the guy Mark who created Students for a Democratic Society. You know, those those guys were very straight. They may have been hippies and they may have been all about love and peace and rock and roll. And, you know, but when it came down to those social issues, they were still quite limited. And I thought it was shocking. I found it shocking. I, I remember going with Jim Ferrat to um, to uh, the um, the black college in Washington, D.C. That's an all black college. Howard. Howard University. Yeah. And it was the people's, the first people's, um, the people's constitutional, uh, the revolutionary people's constitutional convention, right? Well, it was Pat, and um, we sat in the back, and it was an, the first hour was an argument about who was the most oppressed, who should get to speak first, the women, the Black Panthers, the the the, the uh, farm migrant farm workers, you know. So that they never once ever mentioned anything about gay people. And I remember turning to Jim, and we had come from Washington, D.C., at the Gay Liberation uh, uh, Commune. And I said, to, I said to Jim, they're never going to let us speak. We are the new ones. We are the ones at the bottom of the heap here, you know. <laughs> and so it and it really didn't happen until well after Stonewall and well into the 70s when gay people stepped up and said, you know what, I'm not waiting for you to give me permission to do live my life. I'm living my life. And if you don't like it, you can get over it. You know, and that was our approach. But, you know, I just think that's really important to remember about the 60s. It, you know, we thought they were everyone was so conscious and loving and and, and they they were only conscious and loving when it came to their own limitations. Well, I would I, I agree with most of what you said. Um and certainly in the radical political world had had a lot of blind spots that one by one they had to get over and, and it required protest movements such as Stonewall when it came to to gay rights. But there was a parallel cultural pathway that that say Allen Ginsberg to me is the great hero and exemplar of. And he certainly was open about being gay oh, before yeah. before Stonewall and and sure. was and was pretty much accepted and, and kind of a, you know, when I looked at heroes, you know, of the time, the two that I, are my greatest heroes are Martin Luther King and Allen Ginsberg. You know, to me, they, 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 nobody's perfect, including them, as far as I know, but boy, the, the, they, they left legacies that are the most inspiring to me on the sort of on the human Western realm, you know, sure. not, not, not to compete with the, you know, uh, Jesus and, you know, uh, right. people like that. And, um, so, so there were people, Paul Goodman was openly gay, James Baldwin was openly gay, Gore Vidal was openly gay. I mean, there were certainly people that had tremendous stature in some of the cultures, uh, but it hadn't turned into a political movement yet. But, but Alan, to me, is the most amazing because in researching the time, he was everywhere. And he yes, was he loved was. by everyone. You can't find anyone from Stokely Carmichael to the Diggers to... Bob Dylan and the Beatles to even Malcolm X. I mean, yeah, you know, you, you know, um, and um, you know, I got to know him the last few years of his life and adored him, and just wish I had five more minutes. You know, you know, I just look back on every missed opportunity to spend time with him. But is he someone that affected you? Yeah, I mean, I met Alan 
at the foot of the Washington Monument in a March on Washington, uh, and I don't know what year it was. It was late. It was before I moved to New York, and I moved to New York in 73. So it had to be 70, 71, something like that. And I met Alan, and, you know, he was flirting with me. And, 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 I, and I, he, I thought he looked familiar, but I couldn't quite place him. And then when he started talking to me, in the middle of talking to him, I realized I was there standing in front of Alan Ginsberg. And I sort of became overwhelmed because I had 100 questions hmm. that I wanted to ask him. And the only question he was interested in was what I go home with. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. And so I kept so I was a little disappointed by that thinking, OK, look, you know, you're get you're a gay man and I'm a gay man and that's fine. And I appreciate that. And I'm flattered. And I think that's great. But there is something more important here. Why are we here at, at the foot of the Washington Monument in the middle of this giant march for human rights for gay people? You know, and that was what I wanted to talk about. And then I didn't meet Alan again until years later when I moved to New York and I was performing on stage uh, for, for um, the theater company I was with. And I came out on stage and I looked right and I looked through the fourth wall and there was Alan Ginsberg sitting in the front row. And I lost my place and I couldn't remember my lines or anything. And I, I just walked off stage and the, my, the stage manager said, what is wrong with you? And I said, Alan Ginsberg sitting in the front row. And I had to sort of really gather myself back together and then go back out there. Hmm. And then afterwards he was gone and I didn't get to talk to him. And I was so uh, distressed because as a poet yeah. and as a by that point, I had published a lot of my poetry. I thought, why didn't I choose to do poetry tonight instead of this stupid monologue, you know, because then Ginsburg would have been, I would have at least been able to say, well, Ginsburg saw me read, you know. Of yeah. course, the, the, the what assuaged me later was when I met um, John Giorno and went on tour with John Giorno, just he and I all over Europe and Scotland and England, and uh, was opening for him. And that, to me, made up for for not get, let, having Alan, you know, be able to hear my poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, now th- now we're in our 60s. Uh, and um, I just, uh, you know, I look so much. I re- recently found uh, a storage space with files going from the 70s through the 90s and uh, how intensely I I was engaged in every single uh, chapter of whatever I was doing and, and, and identifying with it, as Ram Dass would call it, my role. And uh, I still honor those roles. And, you know, some of them, I made some incredibly stupid mistakes and I did some things that I still feel pretty good about. But here we are, you know, there's almost certainly less time to go in this incarnation than has passed thus far. And and we don't, you know, how is that affecting your inside of your head? You know, I try to think, I try to think to myself, you know, I've had several, I've had several near death experiences in this life. And, you know, I've been on my deathbed a couple of times and was pretty sure I was leaving and then didn't die and said, okay, well, I guess I've got more work to do, you know, but um, it's in those moments when the dark night of the soul comes forth and you sit, you begin to think of all of the mistakes you made or the wrong choices you made, or just, the selfish moments in life when you aren't thinking about anyone but yourself, you know, and you think, gee, could I have done all of this differently? Yes, I could have. Would it have made any difference? It may have. 
but it also, in retrospect, made a great difference having made those mistakes in those eras and to become conscious and aware of them. Because in that sense, it thrust me forward into life as opposed to I don't suffer from low self-esteem I understand I, I, I sympathize with people who do uh, it's not my issue I have a healthier ego you know um, and so I try to work on on the far end of that by trying to reel in my big ego you know mm -hmm. and thinking how can I be a better person how can I be a, a kinder more loving person how can I think outwardly what can I do do to make a difference in my little immediate world that I live in. You know, it doesn't, Hilda used to say, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether you're a waiter or a bartender or a president. It's, you know, how you do what you do, mm -hmm. what you bring to what you do. Be the best waiter, be the best bartender, be the best next door neighbor, be the best that you can be. And um, I don't, when I fail, I, you know, I say, okay, I try to take it apart. Where did I fail? What caused me to fail? Can I do better? How can I do better? You know, that dialogue is an inner dialogue that only comes from a life that is uh, dedicated to uh, growth and development and becoming more conscious. And if we limit ourselves to just the world, you know, oh, how can I make more money? How can I become more famous? How can I sell more books? How can I get, you know, uh, more girls? How can I get more guys? How can I, you know, if you, if you, if I, if we fund, if we focus on that material world, then you fall victim to the rules of the material world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't, you can't do it all the time. You know, I don't even think, I don't think even, you know, great people like Ram Dass or Hilda there. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember the most touching, endearing moment for me among many with Hilda was not a moment of, great enlightenment and consciousness. It was a human moment where Hilda was dealing with having raised two girls, Shanti and Vali, and they had reached puberty and they were dating and they wanted relationships. They wanted what every other teenage girl wants. They want a boyfriend, they want to go out. They want, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And Hilda, had, Hilda called me up one day and she said, could I ask you for some advice? And I thought to myself, my guru <laughs> told me for advice? Mm -hmm. This is insane. Yeah. So I said, well, what can I do for you? And she said, I don't know what to do about these girls. And I said, well, what's the problem, Hilda? And she said, they're, she said to me, and I, I remember like laughing under my breath. She said that 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 she I won't tell which one, but she yeah. was like, she is such a little bitch. <laughs> I said to Hilda, I said, well, you know, Hilda, I think you've fallen right into the trap here. Yeah, you know, yeah. trap. It's this teenage thing, and you you are their mother, and you're not just their divine mother, right, but right. you're in the role of mother. And I think you're so used to being in the role of divine mother. Mm -hmm. But in this case, these are human issues. These are everyday human issues, which she had no experience in dealing with, you know. So I said to her, you know, the uh, I'm not going to throw back your words to you because you know everything. And I said, but I, what I would say to you is that I think that it's important that you stop and take a breath and just say, yes, dear.
and let it go. They'll find their way. And you'll, they'll, you know, and they'll, in the end, they won't end up resenting you. They'll end up loving you because you gave them plenty of room. You need to give them room. And, and then we got off the phone and I remember thinking to myself, that was so, what a great thing. You know, Hilda gave me so much. And to be able to give something back that simple, that really meant a different, made a big difference for her, you know, and the way that she went about then dealing with them. And there, finally, she sort of threw up her hands and said, whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. This is not my business. It's mm -hmm. your business, you know. And um, so, you know, it's just, it's, life is like that. It's that way for all of us, you know. I Do I have regrets? I do, but I don't dwell on them. You know, I'm aware, if you be, once you become aware of something, an error, a mistake, a bad choice, fine. You try to take it in. You see what you can get out of it. You move on and you don't drag it on with you to drag you down, you know, and that's one of the hardest things for us as human beings. You know, I mean, it's silly. I I went to the stop to the grocery store yesterday in my car and a guy pulled in and cut me off and not only took the parking space that I wanted, but he took two of them and parked horizontally instead of vertically. And I. I was so, I mean, I just really reverted right back to being this unconscious person, rolled down my window and said, what are you doing? Are you out of your mind? You know, and I, and then right in the middle of it, I heard Hilda's laughing in my ear, yeah. like, oh, you think you're so evolved, do you? So then I said, oh, sorry. <laughs> I rolled <laughs> my window up and, and then I parked my car. But, mm. you know. It's an it's it's there's a vigilance that's required that comes with this work. And if you live in the world like you and I live in the world, how do you live in the world without becoming of the world? You know, we can have all the wisdom, we can have all the knowledge, we can have whatever enlightening sparks that have been set in in us, but it, it's inevitable. We're human beings, and we're going to we're going to fall short sometimes. Mm -hmm. But don't double, don't make it twice the problem by once you make a, a mistake, then dwelling on it and reliving it over and over and over. It does nothing. It doesn't help you. So instead, right in those moments is when the minute you become aware, that's your that's the moment of opportunity. That's the moment. Well, you know, the other day was Mother's Day, and I always post uh, "Happy Divine Mother's Day" to Hilda, and yeah, I and and um, I uh, somebody reminded me of that lyric of a song that Mirabai wrote: "The Divine Mother, you, the Divine Mother comes to you as your own life. That That's your right. own life, your own life, is the Divine Mother. Is one of the many, 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 many aspects and forms, but is in fact." So if you look at your own life as the creation of the Divine Mother, it's hard to hate it. You know, it's hard to hate yourself, you know, because and and because to me, the whole trick is to get into a space of love, like talking to you. My heart opens. Everything makes sense to me. If half hour from now, very possibly it won't. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Somebody calls, the phone rings or, you know, or you get off of here and you turn on the TV and Trump said another stupid thing. Yeah, or email, you know. So I, to me, it's all about finding a place of being in a state of love. And I, like you, find um, Hilda, her teachings, but her being uh, inspiring. But I think of the many other things, the, the great thing about her, one of the great things about her was that she was not uh, limited. So she would talk about Jesus 
She would talk about Skanda. She would talk about uh, Native Americans. She would talk about <clears throat> Lao Tzu. She would talk about positive thinking without uh, without bhakti involved, just about consciousness and positive positivity and and you know anything that works, anything that gets you in a place of love. That's my only thing I can th figure out. And uh, all I can tell you, my friend, is uh, you may be about to be. How old are you going to be? Sixty-five. All right. Well, I'm about to be sixty-seven, so you're still a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, do you feel sixty-seven? Uh, no, I feel um, I feel um, pretty much the same inside my head, except I feel less desperate about trying to um, accomplish certain things that really obsessed me in my 20s and 30s. Sure. And I, I feel um, uh, a more intense awareness of the of the temporary nature. Uh, I mean, putting aside by the grace of God, my, my health has been fine. But of course, people I know are passing over all the time, and that's going to keep happening with greater frequency. So, so I feel a little different. I feel a little more drawn to remember. I like the word God. I respect people who don't like the word God. It's still the one I gravitate to. Yeah. Um, whatever you want to call higher consciousness, love, a sense of existence that's not just measured in minutes or dollars or you know likes. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but I, I don't feel all that different. I think a lot about being, I try to remember who was I before the sixties, before I smoked dope, before <laughs> I had any identity at all. I was a very shy kid up until, uh, the first time I smoked pot, you know, that was, I, I you know, drugs did a lot of bad things for a lot of people. And it, a lot of people very close to me are in 12 step programs and should be, but for me, at that moment in my life, it opened it opened me to be able to connect with people and to laugh and to see the joy of life instead of just moping around all the time that I was such you a know, when I when I first went to Hilda's class, I was still smoking pot and I would go to her classes stoned. Hmm. And I remember being in her class after a few months, maybe I'd probably been to about 10 of her classes. And I'm sitting uh, and as I and when I first got there, I sat way in the back. And by the 10th time I went there, I was sitting as close up front as I could get. Mm. And then after I was with her for, you know, five years, I was sitting r really right in front of her. There was nothing between her and I. And then it dawned on me one day, even if I was sitting in her lap, it wouldn't be close enough. Right. So then I thought, well, now. I I'm with her anywhere and everywhere, you know, and when we were I may have told you this before, but when we were in Rome and we went to see the Pope and afterwards I she had to go to the bathroom. So I walked her outside and then I said, well, do you, should we go back in there? Because her other students were inside listening to the Pope. And she said, oh, no, she said, I don't mean any disrespect, but that man's putting me to sleep. And I said, well, so what would you like to do? And she said, well, let's let's go back to the hotel. So we walked across St. Peter's Square and we stopped for a minute so that I, Bobby, could catch his breath, <laughs> she said. <laughs> and of course, she was in her 80s at this point. So we stopped, and I remember looking at her in the moon. There was a full moon over her head behind her. And I, and I said to her, you know, Hilda, I always worry for a long time what will happen when you leave, you know, when you leave your body. Mm. And, and I said, but I don't worry about it anymore because I know I'll be even closer to you then than I am now. I don't have to come up to a hundred seconds. I feel that, I swear to God, Bobby, I feel closer to her now. I yeah. actually do. I think about her every single day. 
Me too. Uh, every every day, and I I I think it. I think she's in my mind more than she was than when she was on the earth. I I, I do think that, but uh, I sure liked it when she was on the earth because it, it 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 you could just get there in one second. You know, just eight five zero four six two nine. That's right, know? and I had and you know, and I had all three phone numbers. I yeah. mean, you know, but I and then I remember leaving uh, the the Hindu temple once with Hilda. And I was driving, and it was Hilda and I and Shanti and Bali. And we were going to my little apartment in the village because I was going to take pictures of them because she was going to put this record deal together for you. So they had to have, you know, photographs to go with this record thing they were going to do. And so we got to my apartment, which was a small studio in the village, and I had a little, little backdrop set up, and I had the girls set up. And I turned around, and Hilda had laid on, down on my bed and fallen asleep. And I, all I could think about was, oh my God, the things that have happened in that bed, (laughs) (laughs) laying there in that bed, you know, and yet when she woke up, she said, you know, oh, I feel so refreshed and, and everything. And I looked at her and that must've been the look on my face. And she just looked at me and she said, oh dear. She said, things that happened in the past are of the past. Hmm. The, The present is the opportunity for the, for a better future. You know, and and it was those subtle moments, things like that, you know, those great long lectures and classes of hers were fabulous and wonderful. But it's those little and she said once, you know, when I'm gone, you're not going to remember these big, long lectures. You're going to remember little, simple moments. And those moments are going to, you know, encapsulate who your relationship with me. And it's true. It's these little teeny moments that come that I remember, you know, but, you know, uh, here we are. And, uh, you know, I fully expect to live another 20 or 30 years. I fully expect you to live another 20 or 30 years. And we're going to be here. We are the ones that are going to be here. We're going to watch these changes unfold and happen. And everything that you know, everything that you have taken on, everything that you've experienced, everything that I was given that we have at our disposal is going to come into play. And so you can't, this is, this will make our conversation full circle because we started talking about Trump. So cannot allow a person like Donald Trump and all of those people who have their own agendas to interfere with your own journey. You know, Hilda used to say during this time period, don't look to the left or to the right. Mm. Keep your eyes on God mm. and keep, stay focused and just always be moving straight ahead and let, let it fall off of you. You know, I, I laugh at Donald Trump, you know, I'm going to be laughing if he destroys the country. And I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. You know, I I haven't been up to the land in 15 years. You know, my house is sitting there empty for anybody who wants to use it. You know, and I one of the greatest things that Hilda said to me when she called me a week before she passed away was um, she said, go everywhere you're invited and be a friend to everyone. But don't expect any friends. Just you. It's about you. It's not about everybody else. It's about you. And so for me, I, I felt like, oh, well, she's setting me free. I don't have to go there and follow all those strict rules there. And I can, you know, am I a householder or am I a yogi? 
I'm a yogi who lives in a home, in a house with a real life. And that's who I am. And I and I and I don't think I I mean, I after Hilda passed for a few years, I kept thinking I should go to India. I should give everything up. I should leave America. I should go to India. This is my moment. This is my opportunity, you know, and then I didn't go, you know, and I was so close to Yogi Ram Surat Kumar and he didn't pass away until 2008. You know, I could have had if he would have allowed it, if it was his will, I could have gone there and been with him. But, you know, that wasn't to be. This what this is what I chose. I chose to live in the world, to be a part of the world, and to try to plant seeds wherever I can and water those seeds with love. And oh, that's all we can do. I can't think of a better ending. Thank you, Bobby. You're welcome. Thank you, Danny.